0: In 2006, Nicholas Stern wrote a report that shocked people because it proved that if we didn't do anything to fight climate change, it would be extremely expensive for our societies and people would suffer immensely. Years later, he said, I got it all wrong. It's far, far worse.
1: If the permafrost thaws, if the Amazon collapses... If you see the melting of the land-based ice uh, in Antarctica, you're talking about huge uh, tipping points, feedback effects. You get into very nasty downward spirals.
0: Welcome to Planet A, a podcast on climate change. My name is Dan Jørgensen. I am Minister of Climate, Energy and Utilities in Denmark. In a series of conversations, I ask some of the world's leading experts, policymakers and activists how to stem climate change.
1: We, the human species, are confronting a planetary emergency.
0: For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear.
1: The reason I believe we need to act now is because the facts are staring us in the face.
0: The time to answer humankind's greatest challenge is now. The Paris Agreement for climate is accepted. So this gives us the best possible shot to save the one planet we've got. There is no Plan B because we do not have Planet B. You're listening to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. Today, I speak to Professor Lord Nicholas Stern. Nicholas Stern is the chairman of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and Environment at the London School of Economics. Nicholas Stern served for many years as the World Bank's chief economist. Later, he worked for the British government where he wrote The Economics of Climate Change, Also known as the Stern Review. Today I talk to Nicholas Stern about the reasons why it is important, also for economic reasons, to stem climate change. We talk about the relation between ethics and economics, and we talk about the challenges and possibilities that countries are facing with regards to fighting climate change in the middle of a pandemic. Professor Lord Nicholas Stern, welcome to this podcast, Planet A. Thank you very much, Dan, and uh, I'm Nick. It's uh, it's an honor to have you here. We've met, of course, uh, several times. Last time we met was in, in Madrid in December, and a lot of things has happened, it's fair to say, and, and we'll uh, we'll touch upon the meaning of the COVID-19, the pandemic, uh, crisis vis-a-vis, uh, climate change later. But first of all, I'd just like to share with uh, the listeners... How I first came across your name, I was a more or less new member of the European Parliament. It's just known as the Stern Review now, but it's actually called the Economics of Climate Change. How did you get started with that report and why did it have such a big impact, do you think?
1: The origins of the report itself were in the um, G8 Summit, which the UK hosted in 2005. And the twin subjects there were Africa and climate, subjects chosen by Tony Blair, with the strong support of Gordon Brown, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. We made quite good progress at that G8 Summit on Africa and countries committed to strong increases in aid. But Africa, and it was around the time of Make Poverty History, you might have, uh, might remember those social movements, which are very powerful, led by uh, people like Bono and Bob Geldof and so on. So the Africa side of the G8 summit uh, in 2005 went well. The climate side had very little traction. And it was quite clear that the leaders were not interested, that the civil servants who were preparing for it said, why are we doing this? And we knew, I mean, myself, Tony Blair particularly, that this was a very big subject. Um, But the question was, why had it not got traction? And that was in large measure where Gordon Brown came in as Chancellor of the Exchequer, the finance minister, the economics minister. And we argued that actually it's because, or one of the reasons, is because it's seen as an environmental, slightly scientific story. People don't see the relationship between that and their lives and livelihoods. If you like, they don't see the economics of it. So Gordon Brown and Tony Blair asked me, to lead a report on the economics of climate change. And they asked me as someone who knew about climate change in terms of the ordinary citizen, but I had not worked at great length there. My life had been as a development economist. I had recently come back to the UK from the position of chief economist of the World Bank. So I was approaching this as somebody who had had a lifetime professional experience in terms of development, lives and livelihoods, what uh, can change people's lives? And they asked me to do it from that kind of policy and economic development perspective. Then when I got into the detail of it, all, um, uh, I had thought the uh, risks were big as an ordinary citizen. But when you get into the detail and I sat down with the best scientists in the world, then you know, the scale of the risk as they came through was just remarkable. And I, once you start thinking about this, you can't stop.
0: Yes, well, I think what made a big impression, at least in the European Parliament, but I think many places in the world was that you showed people by using the instruments of an economist, not from somebody normally studying climate change, not not a natural scientist, but as an economist, what will this mean for our economies and thereby uh, our lives if we don't do anything?
1: Yeah, and uh, you see the extreme weather events, you know, that... The hurricanes uh, that batter typhoon cyclones, depending which part of the world you're in, that batter people in you know, ways which kill, destroy livelihoods, destroy infrastructure. They don't just damage now; they set development uh, right back. You see uh, rising sea levels and storm surges. You uh, uh, see desertification uh, in some parts of the world. You know extreme flooding in other parts of the world. And you start to see, of course, those are all operating through water, but you start to see, of course, the problems of intensity of temperature itself and what human beings and, of course, what uh, our biodiversity, uh, natural capital can cope with. So you start to see those things as profoundly affecting people's lives. And if you let it go, of course, hundreds of millions, perhaps billions would have to move. And if people move on that scale, You've got severe risks for uh, conflict across the world and you could not turn off the reasons for those uh, conflicts. So once you start to think about how it affects people's lives and livelihoods, where they can live, how they can live, will they survive, then the uh, magnitude of the risks that we run is deeply, deeply worrying. And... uh, That's what hits you when you sit down and say, how do I translate this science into economics?
0: You've also argued that CO2 is actually a market failure. It's a a negative externality. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Yes, it it is.
0: Um, Maybe maybe just to, to explain to listeners first what a
1: market externality is. A market externality exists when something you do affects other people's ability to consume and produce. Um, But the market doesn't reflect that impact that you have on others. So if I go to a restaurant and uh, eat out, uh, that's just beginning again. (laughs) It's close to our hearts. Uh, If you go to a restaurant and eat out, you expect to pay for the food. You expect to pay for the time of the people who prepare the food and serve you. You expect to pay for the space because all those things you are using up, you're depriving other people of their time and their space and their food when you use it and you expect to pay for it. But if your actions, uh, simply, you know, you, you pay when you um, warm your house with a gas boiler and you pay for the gas and you pay for the boiler, you have to buy the boiler, you expect to do that. But if your action destroys or undermines other people's activities through the greenhouse gas emissions and the climate change it brings about, Without public policy, you do not pay for that. So you are seeing your activity, at least on this dimension, as too cheap. And you push it too hard. And that is the market failure. The market is not giving the signals associated with the costs you impose on other people. And that's how you get into this uh, problem.
0: So did did you, as the author of the report, I'm sure you noticed what an effect it had on policymakers like myself. But did you also uh, did you also identify any changes in the way other economists uh, looked at the problem, uh, not least because of your report?
1: Uh, it began um, because it's not only the market failure; it's the magnitude. You know, we all do we all do it. Of course, we do. We all do it, and the impacts are on all of us, and they're big. And that's why I called it the biggest market failure the world has ever seen that language and it's correct uh, began to attract the attention of economists of course there had been some work on the economics of cl- climate change in the 15 years or so or even 20 years or so before that but it had been quite lo- low profile it hadn't captured the imagination it it was fairly marginal to the profession it took a little time for climate to be uh, central to economists, I think it is now, and it it did accelerate. I hope after the Stern Review, but it's taken a while. I think to get to the centrality that it deserves in economics, and now I think if you look at economics and if you look at the business world, it is now central. But it, that happened a bit slower than i have hoped, actually. Then, but it's it's come now. I think.
0: But. Even though I I, I totally agree that there are definitely some lessons to be learned using the methods and instruments of uh, an economist when when you are analyzing climate change, I think you would probably also agree with me that there are also limitations since this is also a moral issue. This is also a a natural scientific issue that we don't have enough knowledge of yet. We have a lot. We know it's bad, but there's also still things we don't know, so we cannot calculate the risks. Uh, As an economist, what do you say to to
1: those points? I think the ethics are fundamental here. Uh, By what right do we destroy the prospects for future generations? I think most of us who reflected hard about that would say we do not have that right. We should not deeply damage their prospects. Now, you can speak about uh, our own children and grandchildren. I do think of my grandchildren. And uh, uh, we can see it through the eyes of our own, but we have to see it more generally. And that's a profoundly ethical question. It's also true that climate change hits hardest, the poorest in the world, and uh, with the weakest defenses. They are more vulnerable, whether they're in the the slums of Mumbai that's hit by uh, a cyclone, or that the poor people in uh, New Orleans hit by a hurricane. Uh, it's the poorest people of the world who are hit earliest and hardest. So that is a fundamental ethical question too, because actually those people have done least because they consume least and they emit least. They've done the least to create the problem of climate change. So they're profound ethical questions there. But I think, I hope that most economists would recognize they do not live in an ethical vacuum. The purpose, purpose of public policy, which we think about, should be thinking about economics, is to make the world better. So what do we mean by making the world better? Well, it's about living standards of people in different places, different times, including uh, where, uh, where we are. The science, of course, is, is fundamental to all this. It was the scientists who told us what was happening. And what the causes were of these things we were beginning to observe and we've seen in these last few years just how intense that has become we're already over one degree centigrade and we know that going beyond 1.5 degrees centigrade is deeply dangerous we're already seeing the floods and the fires and uh, the you know the hurricanes uh, the severity of the hurricanes and uh, and so on so we're starting to i think uh, feel physically what the The scientists have pointed to, but at the same time, um, you know, that's just over one degree. Imagine what two, three degrees are like, and we're headed for well over three degrees if we don't change our game and change it uh, quickly. So the scientists have a fundamental role in in explaining to us where we're heading and just how bad it is where we're heading. Because we only just feel it a little bit now on, you know, one, 1.1 degrees centigrade. We're risking over three. We haven't been there for three million years.
0: Do you think there's a a risk that when economists look at these issues that there tend to be a bias in what they then recommend to policymakers, for instance, because they are naturally focused on the things that they can measure and the things that they can see and the things that they can prove? And the reason that might be a problem is because if there's anything we know, it's probably that we don't know enough. Uh, We know that it's bad, but we are also every day almost, or at least every month, confronted with new knowledge telling us that what we thought was bad is actually even worse because there's positive feedback mechanisms that we didn't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've grown up and we've developed as uh, people uh, through experience and adjusting our actions when the experience of their uh, effects... Uh, Proves to be damaging. That's evolution. It's evolution in the grand sense of, uh, of uh, Darwin, but it's also evolution in our understanding and behaviour as political people, as social citizens. That when we find out something is damaging, we try to change it. At least I hope so. But this is this is more difficult than that. This is anticipating the consequences of our actions when they will occur down the track some of them will be a long way down the track 10 20 50 60 years from now so we have to anticipate in that sense <clears throat> the consequences are uncertain we don't know exactly what they will be and they are consequences of our collective behavior not just our individual behavior you know we are running over children We're, if if trucks destroyed the lives of children today and tomorrow, my goodness, we would react quickly. But that's actually what we're doing in a big scale. And if you like, we're collectively driving the truck, not individually driving the truck, it's the sum total. All these things, if you put them together, make action difficult. And in some ways, remarkable how far people have come given those difficulties of long-term consequences that follow from collective action, they're uncertain. Nevertheless, we have come quite a long way, I think, as a world in understanding this problem. Yet, yet, we still don't understand it uh, collectively, deeply enough, because the urgency of action is overwhelming. And just give one indication in many ways of describing urgency, but uh, I'll do it the economist way. Our infrastructure will likely double as a world in the next 15 or 20 years double that's our energy and our transport and our communications our water that's what we think of infrastructure particularly energy transport of course in this context
0: and this is due to the fact that we'll have be more people on the planet and they will be richer yes it'll
1: mostly be the richer story but to some extent it will be the extra people as well it will Um, and uh, if we build that infrastructure looking anything like the infrastructure we have at the moment our emissions will go strongly upwards when we know they have to go strongly downwards from now to have any reasonable chance of staying well below 2 degrees or indeed 1.5 so that's that simple illustration says that that infrastructure which we'll build in the next 15 or 20 years has to be has to be very different and we need to take the decisions on that now because we know how long it takes to build, implement uh, infrastructure. I don't think that urgency of action is sufficiently well understood.
0: Well, you yourself actually admitted something that uh, scholars, professors like yourself, don't do that often. You admitted that you were wrong. In 2013, you gave an interview in which you said, I got it wrong. It's actually far, far worse.
1: Yes, I did say that, and I said it with reason. Because if you look back, the, the stonary was, was published in 2006, and we were using the data, of course, of, from the science of two or three years, the analysis of two or three years before that. So we were really using uh, scientific assessments from more or less the turn of the century, or just after. Here we are now in 2020, sort of two decades later than those data, and we see that emissions have gone driving on upwards. And of course, concentrations go upwards all the while that emissions are net positive. That's why we need net zero, because it's only when you get to net zero that you stabilize the concentrations. So emissions have been going up, concentrations have been going up. And uh, uh, a lot of the effects have been coming through faster than we thought. You know, I don't think people would have anticipated, as scientists, uh, Twenty years ago, or, or writing as that was the data we were using, you know that you'd see 100 degrees Fahrenheit in uh, in northern Siberia. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Not so far. I mean, Denmark's not so far away from the. I mean, it's not on the Arctic Circle, but it it you know, you're seeing quite extraordinary temperatures of the kind I think that wouldn't have been anticipated, and that brings in very strongly the worries about tipping points. I mean, if the permafrost thaws, if the Amazon collapses, Amazon forest, if you see the melting of the land-based ice uh, in Antarctica, you're talking about huge uh, tipping points, feedback effects, that where one thing feeds on uh, other and you get into very nasty downward spirals. Those things now I think are much more likely than we would have seen uh, 20 years ago because these effects have been coming through uh, faster.
0: Maybe it's important to to also just remind listeners that one of the reasons why we are talking internationally about uh, keeping the temperature increase below 1.5 or below 2 degrees is that we've scientists have tried to calculate how much should the temperature increase before these uh, feedback effects sets in uh, and before the most vulnerable countries on the planet are, are hit uh, the hardest. And uh,
1: if that happened, then development would be set back. We'd be facing a future of falling living standards, not uh, rising and, of course, devastating the sun. I mean, the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees is very big. I mean, it, you know, the, the, for example, the frequency of series severe droughts, would, would double. Um, the frequency of the severe uh, weather events, you know, the kind of hurricanes, cyclones, and so on, that would at least double. Now, the kinds of things that do the devastating damage in the, in the shorter run, as well as, of course, the problems of the tipping points in the longer run, uh, are much bigger if you move from 1.5 to 2. And I think the uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report of the uh, autumn of 2018 on 1.5 degrees really woke us up to uh, the uh, advancing scientific research that said that you know we thought that 2 degrees was a dangerous threshold before, and now it's 1.5.
0: Yeah. 2 degrees used to be the target that most people were arguing that we needed to stay below. We know more now, so now everybody, most people agree anyway that even at 1.5, we will see devastating uh, effects. And of course, we are at approximately one degree now in increase. We are. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But Dan, we should turn to the positive story because. Yes, let's, um, let's, let's get you, to that. You, you must begin by understanding the huge risks that we run. But then you start, and, and I said since the Stern Review was published, uh, you were right. I said that I'd underestimated those risks I had because I was following the science of. You know that was available in you know, the early years of this century and the experience has uh, been worse and the science has got deeper and stronger in showing the risks but there's something else has happened which is that as we've grown conscious of these risks the uh, technologies for doing things differently have really advanced and now we find and that's another way in which I got it wrong is the first things I underestimated the risks but the second way I got it wrong was to underestimate the speed of change of technology. But we did not predict, I don't think anybody else predicted either, in, uh, when the report was published in 2006, that now the cost of round-the-clock solar in many parts of the world is less than the cheapest fossil fuel electricity, even without a carbon price and without a subsidy. That is transformational. It's now much cheaper for those who are trying to advance their development to invest in renewables, even without the carbon price, even without taking into account the terrible pollution, air pollution and other pollution that comes from burning fossil fuels. That's been extraordinary. Who would have thought in 2006 that all the major car companies would be talking about the end of the era of the internal combustion engine? And, you know, and in my own country, the UK, it will not be on sale after 2035. I hope that actually uh, becomes sooner than that. And around the world, you're getting uh, targets like that. You can't sell or you won't be able to sell. In India, it's 2030. So um, that is a transformational. And we've discovered, which we perhaps should have discovered earlier, that the uh, uh, electric-powered vehicle is far more efficient and cheaper to produce when we go to scale than the internal combustion engine you, know, you have radiators and an internal combustion engine car just throw away the heat that's their uh, that's that's their purpose right? and so that transformation in technology has just been remarkable a big help is the digital advances which of course are the digital world that we see now is so different from the digital world we saw 15 years ago And if you want to manage big systems, uh, if you want to manage a modern city where cyclists and pedestrians play a much bigger role, where the private car is not used anywhere near so much or at all, then the whole digital advance, you're looking at electricity systems matching supply and demand in sophisticated ways. Indeed, what Europe should be doing is sharing its electricity right across different places in Europe on a big scale. And you need modern grid systems and modern digital management to, uh, to do that. But that technological advance, whether you look at generation of electricity, whether you look at transport, whether you look uh, at the management of systems, which we need to has been quite extraordinary. So the world that we seek is actually, in, of the carbon-free world that we seek, is really in our hands. And it's a question of moving quickly and managing that change in a decent and fair way.
0: And you can, you can even argue that since this has happened uh, with too little political pressure, without the real price signals from uh, regulation, without a real price on carbon, it has still happened, then that should show us that if we then combine that with actually setting the framework that's needed, then the potential is,
1: is quite, uh, quite big. Oh, it is. I mean, as you say, if all this happens with pretty modest policy, uh, that's even being charitable, if all this happens with pretty modest policy, imagine if our policy was really strong. And if our investments, the clear price signals and and other kinds of signals and uh, the stopping of the selling of the internal combustion engine, if all that was even stronger uh, and we put money into R&D as a world, we would be able to build something that would be enormously attractive. And there's one other part of the story which we should emphasize, too. It's our natural capital, our land and our forests and our water. I mean, the world has uh, around $600 billion of agricultural subsidies. And we probably do need agricultural subsidies, but we need the right kind. We need uh, subsidies that help people, to help people uh, produce in a sustainable way, that avoid waste and so on. And the current system, we degrade the land, we poison the water, we cut down the forests, and most of the money goes to richer people, to richer farmers. We could redesign that, not spend less, but spend it in a different way and have, a, um, have an ecological system that is robust and, and fruitful and land which is more productive and water that's cleaner and forests which are bigger and stronger and you know, more biodiverse. And all that, if you look at the different ways of cutting carbon out of energy and transport and other activities, and if you look at the different ways of building up our natural capital, the alternative world which we're uh, uh, looking for here, beginning to shape, is actually much more attractive than the one we built before. I
0: very much agree with that. And, of course, right now we are in the middle of an unprecedented crisis, uh, the COVID-19 crisis, a a pandemic, which, of course, uh, gives us challenges vis-à-vis the the climate change issue and and policies towards it. But it also gives us opportunities. And you have uh, written uh, an article on that uh, with Professor Stiglitz. Can you give us your main points from that article? Yes.
1: It's the first is that it has created a desire for change. I think people have seen uh, the damage you can do if you uh, ignore the the natural side of your environment, because destroying climate and biodiversity, or undermining climate and biodiversity, makes the emergence of viruses more likely as wild animals, domestic animals, human animals meet in different ways. So there's a desire for change, I think, and people have recognised through COVID how quickly we can change. And those are good things. So how do we do it? How do we recover? Well, I think what we've seen is that what we need to do um, is to build um, back better and more sustainably. And as we do that, we will have a much stronger recovery. So that which is sustainable in terms of uh, recovery is also the stronger recovery. I mean, let me illustrate. Retrofitting buildings, for example, is something which is rapid, labor-intensive, and it um, has strong economic multipliers. Similarly, restoring degraded land or planting trees, fast, labor-intensive, strong economic multipliers. Keynes would have loved it and he had been right. That's that's the way to recover, fast, labor-intensive, and um, strong multipliers. So that is something which uh, is what the paper concluded that the way to recover strongly is the sustainable way, and that we can reset, reset our route to uh, to recovery.
0: Is there a danger that uh, that won't happen? That instead, what will happen is the same that happened in 2008 and the years after, after the financial crisis, where also a lot of economic restart stimulus policies were implemented all across the planet but where they actually went into more fossil driven infrastructure
1: yes we missed an opportunity in 2008 on the whole as a world yeah you know, some places like uh, south korea did it better than uh, others but we missed an opportunity but you know in the um, more than a decade since then we've seen a transformation in technology so i think people see much more clearly uh, the attractiveness of doing things differently, and that in many cases it's just cheaper and more efficient, and that's changed enormously uh, in terms of opportunities. I think people now, in this last ten, twelve years, have seen the importance of natural capital much more, much more clearly. And uh, you know, natural capital means our our land and our forests and uh, and our water. They appreciate that it's not just climate; it's also biodiversity here. That uh, is very important. So I think the change in technology and the change in understanding and the change in risk that, uh, or at least the change in perception of risk, uh, is all different. So I think for those three reasons, we can and must do much better now. And in terms of understanding the risk, I would like to salute the young people of the world and how they've moved in the last four or five years, because they have underlined both the degree of the risk, and they've underlined their recognition of the possibility and the attractiveness of doing things differently.
0: So we started this conversation talking about some pretty depressing facts, really. But is it fair to say, bottom line, that you are actually an optimist?
1: I'm very optimistic about what we can do, because we can now see a way of building back better, building a better world with cities where we can move and breathe, ecosystems which are robust and fruitful, raising the living standards, particularly of the poorer people around the world, but of everywhere, everybody, by doing things differently. So I'm very optimistic about what we can do. I worry deeply, deeply about whether we will do it. And that's the responsibility, Dan, of politicians like you and academics and communicators like me and many others. We have to try and make it happen.
0: Well, in, in, in my country, what happened within the last couple of years is is what is happening in many countries right now, that uh, people demand change. So we had the first election uh, ever in, in Denmark where climate change was on the absolute top of the agenda. And that also uh, meant that we could make uh, a climate act, climate law, that makes it legally binding for us to achieve 70% reduction in, in, in 2030 compared to 1990 which will mean that we will then live up to the standards of the Paris Agreement. Now, obviously, we know that if... We only do it as one single country. uh, That won't matter much. But what we hope to do is to help inspire other countries, uh, help uh, set a good example, uh, and of course also argue where we can, especially in the EU, that uh, bigger actors, uh, groups of countries like the EU, but also others uh, on on the planet, need to act in collaboration and be more ambitious. Do you see the political uh, framework globally as being there right now? Because the COP process, I guess it's fair to say, is in a bit of a crisis. The meeting in Madrid last year was not a success. We've had to postpone now the meeting in Glasgow. So how do you, how do you see this moving uh, forward?
1: I think the example of countries like Denmark, increasingly the UK as well, let it be said, because we have a, an official target of net zero by 2050 and clear structures for getting there. I think Denmark's moving even more quickly and... The Danish example is extremely important uh, around around the world. I think the European um, Green Deal, which was established just as we met last time uh, in Madrid, that I think is a very important step forward. And of course, the Green Deal was set before COVID, just before COVID, and the green recovery that Europe has set, I think is very important. Now, for example, the German car industry uh, usually uh, tries to defend uh, the status quo but what you've seen now you know is Germany has said we've got to go we've got to go beyond that uh, you know we've we've got to make our recovery one that uh, pushes very strongly away from the internal combustion engine you know France has told uh, Air France that uh, we'll do our best to help you but you've got to set uh, targets for net zero in uh, in aviation so I think europe has been doing the right thing. Denmark, of course, right out in front of everybody, and that's extremely important that it stays that way because we need those very powerful examples. We must all now, I think, work closely with the emerging market countries. Um, the big, you know, you've got to look where the numbers are. The big increases in infrastructure and so on will be India, China, Indonesia, and so on, the big countries of the world, and increasingly Africa as it uh, urbanizes and grows. So I think that our collaborations with the uh, developing emerging world are going to be extremely important. And to be credible on that, to show good examples in terms of technologies, to be helpful, we need to show uh, what can be done in Europe. And with a bit of luck, uh, eventually the United States will come.
0: Well, yeah, we'll see about that. Well. Thank you so much uh, Nick for for joining me in in this conversation and and thank you so much for always making us uh, us all wiser on, on this very complex topic. Uh, I look forward to uh, to seeing you again uh, if not before, then hopefully in in
1: Glasgow. Thank you very much, Dan. as always a pleasure to do. Thank you. You've listened to Planet A,
0: a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. If you want to know more about the climate policies of Denmark, you can follow my ministry, the Danish Ministry of Climate, Energy and Utilities, on social media platforms such as Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.